Uh, hi, everybody. My name is Patty, and I am an alcoholic. It's really good to see some familiar faces and some faces of uh, somebody, one person in particular, I have not seen in a really long time. And um, this fellowship is amazing. Uh, so Kathy Ann, shout out. It's just wonderful to see you. Um, I want to say thank you to the group, to everyone in service and keeping this room open and safe. And some other folks like Tally, who at the beginning of the meeting jumped in as well to help out. Um, and I want to welcome anyone who's new. Uh, here in the early days or here for the first time. Um, I get really nervous when I speak. Uh, I don't feel comfortable. It's not my natural state. But what every sponsor I've ever had has told me is I'm not sharing for me. I'm sharing as a part of my responsibility to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I have been given an entirely new life and it's my responsibility to share with others what was passed along so freely to me. And I hope that... Um, Anyone who's struggling or new uh, can relate and, um, you know, feel like they connect. Uh, so my sobriety date is September 16th, 2002. That's today. So today I have 20 years of sobriety, consistently oh. all in a row, um, days and years, which is pretty amazing. Um and my homework group is Darkness into Light, and we actually just had it. It meets Saturday nights, UK time, um, 6.30 on Zoom. And uh, hopefully somebody, maybe Ivory, can share that info to everybody in the chat as your co-host now. We'd love to, to have you all there. Um, and the other thing I want to say before I really get started is anything you hear tonight that you find incredibly helpful, or you're like, wow, that's good. just want to say right off the bat, it's not mine. Um Everything that I have to share that has been of use has been guidance freely given to me. And so I just want to thank everyone who's walked this path before me um, and even those who have come after me because I've learned from from all of you. And it's it's the reason I'm still here today. So, you know, when I was asked to share at this meeting, Joe Nesta um, actually had reached out and said, you know, what's what's your favorite line in the big book, which is impossible, right? Because there's so many. But the line I had actually given her was. Uh, more of a phrase, and it comes from We Agnostics on page 51 of our big book. People are able to say that the consciousness of the presence of God is today the most important fact of their lives. I didn't see that part of the big book for many years. <laughs> like it just, I, it, I just must have skipped right over it. Um, and when I did see it, I actually wrote a question to myself and I said, is this true for me? Because it really wasn't. I, I wish it was. I wish I had that relationship and that connection. Um, but it, it wasn't until a handful of years ago that that became true for me. And, and today, um, I can say that the consciousness of the presence of God is the most important fact in my life. And I'm going to talk to you about how I got there, going from an agnostic who was raised in a fairly religious household, um, who balked and, uh, really lived on self-reliance and self-sufficiency um, got to this point uh, where it is the most important fact of my life, this power greater than me. So um, let's start from the beginning. 
I believe I was born with a spiritual malady. There are plenty, you know, I've been to a lot of meetings in my 21 years and there are plenty of alcoholics that have like a really good time drinking for a while, right? And they have good childhoods and all these other things and they don't feel like they were alcoholic until they picked up that drink. But for me, my personal experiences that I had the ism before I ever picked up a drink, you know, and I don't remember much from my childhood, but the things I do remember was, you know, I remember discomfort. I remember fear. I remember feeling tight all the time. I remember feeling always unsafe. Um, I remember not knowing how to interact with other individuals. And I would see other people go out into the world and, and it looked like they could communicate and, and do this thing and go about life pretty easily. And they even looked like they were having fun. That was not my story. That was not my experience. You know, and there were some things that did happen to me that, you know, shouldn't have happened as a kid, but none of that made me an alcoholic because I had these feelings and, and this other stuff going on. Um, and this, this obsession with thinking about myself and how, how I play out in the world, like what's my role going to be, what's going to happen to me? What, what do I need to do with that person to be accepted? Like all that obsession with self was there, um, before I ever picked up a drink. And as I got older, it just got heavier and heavier and heavier, you know, and I grew up in a fairly, you know, it was lower middle class and my father worked really hard to get us up into the middle class lifestyle, you know, and I didn't, you know, I had, I had food in my stomach, had a roof over my head, I closed my back and yet I just felt like the world was so heavy, right? And things for me just, it was like I had blinders on all the time. It's like, and I didn't know I was afraid all the time, but I can see now looking back, it was fear. I was so afraid. And that fear blinded me, you know, and, uh, and I was whoever you wanted me to be, because if you accepted me, maybe then, you know, I wouldn't be so scared. I don't know. Maybe I would feel like I had some self-worth. I don't know. But when I was 14, I went to somebody's house and they were drinking and, uh, and I had alcohol and I got drunk for the first time. And I don't remember much about it. You know, there's a lot of alcoholics who have these romantic stories about their first drunk. I don't have that. I'm kind of sad about that. But what I do remember is this. I remember that when I took that drink, the weight I was carrying, the heaviness I felt, the tightness in my chest, when I took that drink, it just went. I could breathe. And I thought, this is it. <laughs> right. Like, like. I felt lighter, you know? And from that point on, it was like, this is what I want to do. Um, it was my solution. It was my solution to my life problem, right? But unfortunately, um, it worked really, really well until, and I'm stealing this line from someone in this room, it worked really well until it failed spectacularly. And for me, it failed spectacularly pretty darn fast. I started drinking when I was 14. By the time I was 15, I was leaving school at lunch to go and drink during lunch, coming back completely off my head, you know, trying to get through the school day. And, and here's the thing. I was raised in a family where if the outsides look good, it doesn't matter what's going on behind. My sister was the one that was outwardly disrespectful, disobeyed my parents' rules, and my parents, my mother particularly, was extremely strict. I kept the facade, right? I was getting the good grades. I was involved in sports and academic things and all of that. 
she wasn't. She was a goth, you know, and she said no. She said no to church. She said no to all the stuff right out in, in my parents' faces. She didn't drink. She didn't do drugs, but she was the one they paid attention to. You know, I'm stealing liquor and drinking at night in my room by myself. Right. And they're, they have no idea. You know, I was really good at keeping up that facade. You know, and I was controlling it. Right. But it just, it was failing. It was failing slowly at first and then pretty fast. And, you know, I, I was stuffing all my emotions, you know, and alcohol worked at first, but then it started to create all these other problems because when I wasn't drinking, life became more unbearable. Sobriety, sobriety became more unbearable. I just couldn't stand it. And so I would obsess about when's the next time I can get a drink, you know? Um, and that stuffing of emotions, not knowing how to deal with life on life's terms, it came out with punching walls, sometimes boyfriends, um, complete emotional breakdowns. And I did not show emotions very much when I was not drinking, but when I drank, it just all came out. And, um, you know, people, it, it would not be a rare thing for you to find me in a party or at a party in the closet, like bawling my eyes out, you know, I don't know why. Uh, right. I would just break down. Um, if I wasn't vomiting on someone, I was breaking down. I mean, it was a hot mess, you know, hot mess. Um, and I was always worried about not having enough, right? Like I remember going to parties and of course it was high school. So, you know, someone's parents would be out of town and the fridge would be stacked with beers and I would show up at this party and I would look at the beer and I would look at how many people were there and I'd go, there's not going to be enough, you know, and I would shove these cans into my hoodie. Like, like I got to make sure there's enough, Right. Because, you know, I'm not of legal age. How am I going to get it? Like, so I would, you know, just hoard it and just like, you know, I was just obsessed with it. And I knew that this was not what other people were doing. And that resulted in further emotional isolation, you know? Um, and the more I drank and the more I tried to control it, because I did try to control it, you know, um, Drank through high school, somehow managed through, picked a college where no one else I knew was going so I could start a start anew. It was my only geographic, right? Uh, I went to a school four hours south of where I was living, which was Chicago land area in the States. And um, which, by the way, I know it says East Kilbride, Scotland. I'm sorry if you're disappointed. I don't have a Scottish accent. I just moved here two months ago. So I apologize out there. Um so I moved four hours south and I thought, I'm going to start over, right? It's going to be different here. I'm going to have my stuff together. And the very first people I met in my dorm were right next door. And it was two local girls who hung out with a lot of rough and tough local guys um, who drank as much as I did. And I didn't need to meet anyone else. You know, that was all I needed. And somehow, you know, the facade building that I was able to do, I kept it up for a while longer, but you know, I was a blackout drinker. I blacked out from the beginning. And when you're trying to control your drinking and you're a blackout drinker, I mean, it just doesn't work. Right. I mean, being an alcoholic and trying to control your drinking, it doesn't really work. Um, but like count, you know, collecting bottle caps and, and tabs of the beer cans to try to count how many drinks I'm having. Right. Um, and then you black out and you're like, why do I have two beer tabs in my pocket? Like, that's weird. Um, yeah, it just, Ending waking up and wearing someone else's clothing. Like, when did that happen? I don't know. Uh, and then all the typical stuff, right? Like losing my keys, losing my car, um, coming to and people telling me stories, you know, 
Uh, one time I woke up and I had this huge stuffed fish in my bed with me. I don't know where it came from. No idea. All I know is I must have walked across campus with this huge stuffed fish by myself. I don't know. Um, and that's funny. But as we all know, there are a lot of times that aren't funny, you know, waking up and, you know, the horrible hangovers and those blackouts to brownouts. And so some of those brownout memories are coming back of things that I did and people um, that I hurt, uh, like the punching of the boyfriends, right? You know, the mess that I'm going to have to clean up or did I do that thing? What did I do? Oh my God, did I do that? Or the worst is waking up and things are happening and you don't know if you consented to those happening, right? Um, just horrible things that just cause more misery, shame, remorse. Um, but I never tried to quit because alcohol was my solution. How do you deal with life if you're not drinking? And so I burrowed deeper and deeper into alcoholism, into myself, into my self-sufficiency, right? I can handle this. It'll be okay, you know? I clean up the mess, we'll regroup, start all over, right? We'll be all right. And, um, you know, by this time toward the end here, I was I was a junior in college. I'd just gone back to my junior year at university and, uh, and things were rough. The facade was crumbling, you know, I was not doing well. Um, I started missing classes and failing exams. I couldn't keep it up anymore. I was living in a singles dorm by that time because eat, like drinking the way I was drinking was even not okay with college kids. Like the roommate I had was like, you need to go. You're drinking too much. I'm like, I'm a college kid, right? Apparently that was even like, my drinking was even too far for that. So, um, you know, I was in my dorm room one night and I said to myself, like I had said plenty of nights, I'm not going to drink tonight. You know, I got this big exam tomorrow. I'm not going to drink. And then um, the inevitable happened an excuse occurred, right? Like it always did, you know, and it was really hard for me to fall asleep without alcohol because the mind would just race and race and race and race. And, um, and I was sitting there and I was like, uh, you know, I am, um, I'm not going to drink tonight. I'm not going to drink tonight. And then a boyfriend that had been on and off again since high school had called me and blamed all of his life problems on me. He was an addict and uh, he had a lot of issues himself. And I thought, you know what? Anybody would drink having to deal with this. Right. And uh, and so, you know, I grabbed my bottle from the fridge and I started drinking and I didn't black out that night. And I'm so glad I didn't. Um but I did remember, you know, the, the darkness had gotten so heavy and that those blinders I had talked about, they turned into this tunnel vision. You know, there was no light around me and I had severe depression. I didn't know it at the time, but I, you know, drinking is a depressant, you know, and you take that and, and you keep pouring alcohol on your problems and, and things aren't going to get better. And they didn't for me. And the world got darker and I felt more and more alone. And I wasn't talking to anybody. I never shared my feelings with anyone. I was not raised in a house where we did that. And so I just, you know, I was sitting in my, in that dorm room and I was in so much emotional pain. And at this point I'd hated myself so much and I just didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to go from there. And, a, and a, about a month before I'd accidentally let my mother see me drunk when I had visited home. 
And the next morning, I don't remember what I did, but it must have terrified her because of course I blacked out. And the next morning I woke up and she, she came to me, my mother, she was a scary woman, you know, and she didn't put up with any crap and she must've really been scared because she came to me calmly. And she said, Patty, you know, alcoholism runs in our family and you know what it does to people. Alcoholism, you know, had killed people in my family. You know, my aunt found, um, my cousin dead in his room with a needle in his arm. I had another cousin who killed someone on a motorcycle, another cousin who um, lost a limb, you know, like bad stuff. Right. And she said, Patty, look, have you ever thought about AA? And I was in enough pain at that point. I did look online and all I saw was God, 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 God. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not for me. <laughs> right. Um, I was raised in a strict religious household and, and, um, and I didn't get it because I couldn't see it. And it didn't logically make sense to me. I was a science major and I, it wasn't A plus B equals C. So I said, no, that is not for me. Um, but that night I was in enough pain. I was, it was just so dark and I didn't know what else to do. And I had had suicidal ideations for a long time, but that night I, I was really considering and I thought, you know what? I'll call AA. So I pulled out the phone book when we used to still use those and I flipped open the book. And I called Alcoholics Anonymous and the guy on the phone said, have you been drinking? I don't remember at the time why he would have asked me that question. I'm presuming it's probably because I was sobbing or sputtering or snuttering, snottering or something. And like any good alcoholic, I lied and I said, no. And that man hung up the phone on me. And I am so grateful he did. If he had tried to convince me, oh, you should stop drinking or you should come to AA or whatever, I don't know if I would have continued on and did what I did that night, which is say, you know what? Even Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't want me. I'm done. And I'm so glad I didn't black out because I remember. I remember, you know, I'm getting emotional now. 21 years ago, last night, I remember. I laid out those pills, every pill I could find, and I had that bottle, and I just said, this is it. You know, and I was 19, almost 20, and I knew there was nothing left in this world for me. The world is a horrible place. Nothing good happens. Not for me. You know, all these people that can do these, like, like follow these social constructs, right? And, and they're all about, you know, building this life and going to college and getting married in a car and a house with a, you know, white picket fence. I don't, I don't want that. I don't, how are you supposed to want? I just didn't get it. I didn't get it. And I was done, you know? And, um, and I consumed as much as I could. And, and that's the last thing I remember. And for a long time, I talked about that being my bottom. But recently I realized that wasn't my bottom. My bottom was when I woke up the next morning and I realized even suicide didn't work. And that was the darkest I've ever been. I had no light, I had no hope. And I, you know, when I came to, there was a, a lot of, you know, and that's, that's actually probably right now, you know, 21 years ago, right now, if we look at the time zone difference, um, and I was vomiting and passing out and vomiting and passing my body was just purging everything I had consumed. And when I came to, and I cleaned it all up and it was dark, it had just gotten dark. And I sat down on my futon in my single dorm and I stared at the wall and I thought it was my jumping off point. I thought you, you don't, no one knows what you just did. You can keep going like this. You, you can just, just keep going. Just tell your professor you were sick. Just go back to school tomorrow. Just go back to class. It's fine. 
And this little voice in my head said, you can't do that. You cannot do this anymore. You cannot live like this. And so I decided for the first time in my life to ask for help. And the only power greater than myself that I knew was my mother that I was terrified of her of. And I called her, I picked up the phone and I called my mom and I told her what had happened. And my parents came down the four hours. They picked me up. They brought me back up North to the Chicago suburbs. They put me in the psych ward and I was there for a week, you know, and actually I had always thought like the psych ward was where I wanted to be. I was a big fan of one flew over the cuckoo's nest, you know, and I thought, you know, and for me, like, you know, when you have depression, you cannot make decisions. Right. And I, I would be staring at like a vending machine and I couldn't choose. And I would just walk away without anything because I just couldn't make a decision. And I would watch, you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And I'm like, they got it made, man. They're told when they go to sleep, they don't have to pick clothes. They're fed. They play cards. They got buddies. Right. Like I thought that's easy. You don't have to make any decisions. Right. And here I am in the psych ward. And let me tell you, it is not that movie. First of all, um, people need help in there. Uh, I needed help. That's why I was in there. Right. But um, after a few days, you know, I still felt like I was blown in the wind. And um, but I knew that wasn't my solution. The psych ward was not the answer. Uh, and they let me out of there and they put me in intensive outpatient. And in an intensive outpatient, pretty quickly, they said your best chance of any any kind of life different from what you had was Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, okay. And I went to my first meeting. And actually, I didn't go to, well, I went to my first meeting, but I sat in the parking lot <laughs> for as long as possible. It was another jumping off point because I, I thought to myself, you don't have to, you don't have to go in. You could just say you went in. Right. Because I had driven myself. And uh, and I remember driving up and parking and there are all these like guys on motorcycles and they're revving the engines. Right. It's outside the Solano Club in Crystal Lake, Illinois. Right. And um, it's like, you don't have to go in. You don't have to go in. And that little voice again said, yes, you do. You don't know how to do life any other way than than what you've been doing. You have to try something different. And so I went into that meeting and a bunch of women took me into a separate room. Um, because I'd raised my hand when they said, are there any newcomers? And in the Midwest, uh, they have what's called the first step meeting. And um, and I was a woman, so all these women took me into this separate room and they went around the room and they all told their stories. And for the first time in my life, I heard women say out loud things that I've been thinking in my head my whole life that I thought maybe broken, not worth breath, right? Maybe a piece of trash. You know, reasons I couldn't look in the mirror. And these women were saying these things, but they were smiling and laughing at each other and saying how they got out from under all that mess. And I wanted what they had. And for the first time in my life, I felt this hope. I never knew what that was. And so I had this identification. I had this hope. And in that meeting, I met an angel. Literally, her name was Angel. And she became my first sponsor. And, uh, and she got me into the steps right away, you know? Um, and I'd asked her at the end of that first meeting, she said, do you have any questions? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So how often do you guys do this thing? And she was like, well, 
you know, uh, we suggest you go to 90 meetings in 90 days. And that's not in our big book, but it is often a suggestion. Um, and she must have seen the look on my face because <laughs> she was like, well, how often did you drink? And I was like, oh, I get it. Every time I could. So like every day. So I should go to a meeting every day because I'm like every day. That's a bit extreme. Well, OK, um, if I want the solution and if I want what they have, I have to do what they did. Right. And so that's what I did. And I ended up going to many meetings uh, a day, oftentimes. Um, and I'm so grateful for it. And, you know, and I got into the steps with Angel and, you know, the first and second step, I had kind of done those when I walked in the door. I knew I was powerless. I knew my life was unmanageable. I was broken. I didn't have anything else. I tried it my way, tried to die, you know, before AA, I tried to die, right? It didn't work. And so I was willing and I was, a, I was thinking Alcoholics Anonymous could be that thing, right? And then we got to the third step and there was that word, you know, God. And uh, made a decision to turn our will and life over the care of God as we understood him. I saw that word and uh, and I struggled. And my sponsor said, Patty, God is wherever you want it to be. You know, it's your own conception, you know? And so I talk a lot about God today, but for anyone newcomer out there who bristles at that word, I get it. I, I get sometimes those negative associations we have with that word, but make it whatever you want. I call it God because it's easier, but it took me a long time to get to that point. And all I can suggest is just keep trying, keep plugging away at this thing, you know? Um, you know, so I got, I got to this third step and I was like, I don't, I don't know how to move forward. Cause I just don't, I can't grasp this God thing, you know? And she said, use the group, Patty. The group is something bigger than you. You know, if you went into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and everybody in the group held you down, you wouldn't be able to move. Right. I was like, no. And she was like, okay, it's bigger than you. It's more powerful than you. And I got that because I was so logical, right? And so, and and I knew that when I went into a meeting of AA, I always felt better, always. And that for me was something that was more powerful than me. And so that's what I leaned on and I kept coming back. But here's the thing that happened, right? And here's the thing that I hope that happens for all of you is when we keep coming back, this program works on us. Even if we feel resistant, even if we feel like we're struggling or like I'm not getting it, we keep coming back. We keep plugging away at this thing. It works on us. And that's what happened for me. You know, my sponsor said, all right, Patty, it's time for you to get started on the fourth step. And I said, wait, 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 wait. I don't know if that's a good idea because I know there's a God now, right? I've been doing this thing for long enough, a handful of months, right? And I've seen God working in my life. You know, on my 20th birthday, it was, a you know, a few months after I was sober. All I wanted to do that day was drink. That's all I wanted. And I didn't tell anyone about it. And I went to a meeting in the morning and I was pissed off because all I wanted to do was drink and I couldn't, right? And then right after that meeting, somebody asked me for coffee and I went to coffee with them. And I just got an attitude all day. I'm just, oh God, I just, why don't I just go drink? I'm just going to go drink. But then right after that, someone invited me to another meeting. And then after that, someone asked me to hang out. It's two in the morning and all I've done is AA all day long. And I'm hanging out with this old timer, right? And finally, I'm honest. And I say, you know what? I'm just pissed off this program. All I want to do is go drink. And I just, I don't know why I'm not just going and drinking. And he goes, you know what that was? Do you know what that is? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. First things first. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, just, I don't know. I just start reciting like some of the posters we see in the room, right? And, um, and he goes, no, Patty, that's God. And I was like, what? 
And I realized that I was looking for this huge, and our book talks about this, right? We're looking for these huge burning bushes, but sometimes God is subtle. Actually, a lot of, for me, most of the time, God is subtle. It's just a subtle touch, right? And if I'm not paying attention, I miss it. An old timer explained to me once that, you know, when I was searching for my spirituality, I was going online, I was looking on the internet, I was looking at all these different religions and everything, all these different philosophies and beliefs, and it never quite fit with me. And I knew that it, it could be my concept, but I just was such a, you know, for an alcoholic, a rule follower, and I felt like I couldn't quite do it, right? And he said to me, Patty, imagine your spirituality, like you looking for God, your search for God is like a handful of sand. What you're doing is you have this handful of sand and you're trying so hard to hang on to it and keep it. All that sand is just falling right through. And what you need to do is just hold it gently. Be curious about it. You know, let it be. Keep working the program and it'll come, you know. And I tried to do that. <laughs> um, you know, so I kept going with the steps, action, right? 